And this morning, I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you. Before I get into that, I just want to say thank you to those of you who are praying for us. Some of you know um, we had an interesting weekend as a family. Yesterday, my three boys were at a, a scouting trip, and my youngest son, Nathan, was hiking. And the best we can figure out, he kind of blocked some of it out so we can't get all the details straight, but he slipped down like a big boulder and he broke his ankle really bad. And so he was stuck out there for like two hours. The ambulance came. They took him out on a board. And, uh, and now he's at Children's Hospital. And they got it all set back in place. But we're, we're just sort of waiting now to hear um, what the, the chief orthopedist says as far as like if he needs surgery or whatever. So thank you guys who have been praying and continue to pray for Nathan. I plan to go back to the hospital after I'm done here. So... Um, We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we started with the Beatitudes, or as I like to think of them, the Beatitudes, and we began to move into Jesus speaking about what it means to be a disciple. So this morning, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount as we look at Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. I'm titling the message this morning grade school ethics. And I think that will make more sense as we go along. And I can't think of a better way to start a sermon called grade school ethics than with a Sunday morning cartoon. So will you join me? This is about a four minute long cartoon from 1942. Let's uh, watch this and see what we can learn. Don't you love Sunday morning cartoons? (laughs) I meant what I said. I said what I meant. An elephant faithful, 100%. In elementary school, I can remember being out on the playground and hearing something like this. Cross my heart. Hope to die. It's true. This is what you would say if you really needed to convince the other kids that you were serious about doing whatever it was you said you were going to do or, or saying whatever it was you were saying, right? And if you still needed to add something on top of that, you would add, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a... That's right. Now you really meant it. But if you recall, there was a way out of it. Do you remember what it was? If you had your fingers crossed when you were talking, that would mean your promise didn't count. And if you lied, you wouldn't die or get a needle stuck in your eye. But of course, the other kids might see, so you had to hide it behind your back or under the table. So what was this all about? It would seem that there were two standards of truth on the playground. The normal one, which apparently was pretty low, and the higher standard if you said, cross my heart. And the implication was that if you didn't say, cross my heart, then you didn't get in trouble if you weren't completely faithful. Grade school ethics, right? Aren't you glad we grew out of that as adults? Or did we? Actually, as adults, we say things like, honest to God, I mean it. Or you might hear somebody say, I swear on my mother's grave. Or I swear on the head of my firstborn son. 
Just the other night, Peggy and I were in an argument, and I caught myself saying, with all my heart, before God, this is true. So why do we still do this? It would seem as though we still believe there are two standards of truth, the normal standard and the higher standard. And Jesus had something to say about this. Let's look at today's past passage, which comes from Matthew, verses 30, Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. I'll read it, and it'll be on the screen here for you. You can read along. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word and the truth that we find in your word. And we ask that you would come this morning and illuminate your truth to us. That we might become more like Jesus. Lord, I ask that anything that is not of you would fall on deaf ears, but what is of you, that it would penetrate my heart and everybody's heart here, and that we would become more like Jesus. Amen. So let me give you a little context for today's passage. And we actually find that in the first verse, 33, as we see the idea of oaths or promises comes from the Old Testament. Let's look at verse 33 again. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. And even though this saying isn't an exact quotation of a particular verse, it captures the heart of the Old Testament teaching on oaths that we find in several passages. And I'm not going to go to these passages, but I'll give you the references so that if you're taking notes, you can look these up later. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. The idea was, if performed properly, oaths were approved by God as a way to show allegiance over idols. However, by Jesus' time, oaths were being widely abused. The people of the day knew the seriousness of invoking God as the guarantor of a person's word. And so they began to look for more subtle or benign substitutes, such as swearing by earth or by the hairs on their head. Look at verses 34 through 36 again. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. So heaven, earth, and Jerusalem are inseparably linked with God as his dwelling and possession. So really, this was just a lame attempt at getting out of a promise ultimately made to God. A little like crossing your fingers behind your back on the playground. So what was Jesus' exhortation here? Let's look at the next verse, verse 37. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
So Jesus is saying there should not be two standards of truth. Rather, one truth that we live out at all times. Those who Jesus has redeemed and who are members of his kingdom should have no need for oaths. As Christians, we should always say what we mean and mean what we say, like Horton. However, the fact remains that we live in a fallen world where people lie all the time. And so many of us wonder, how do we operate in a world where oaths still seem necessary? And it would seem that we can't just throw out oaths and vows altogether. They're part of our legal system. Lawyers take oaths. Doctors take oaths. The president took an oath. We have marriage vows. And oaths appear to be used elsewhere in the New Testament, possibly by Jesus himself. Let me read you a couple of those. In Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64, the high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus answers him. Then in Acts 18, verse 18, we read, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Centrea because of a vow he had taken. Also, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was an order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And then a couple other references if you want to look them up later, Galatians 1, 20, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. So how do we operate in a world where oaths still seem necessary? How do we live out what Jesus is saying here? Well, Jesus is encouraging us to be people of truth, one truth, a people who don't have to give oaths to prove that we are trustworthy and faithful because people know that we are trustworthy and faithful because they know us and they see how we live. Did you know that this church could not function without faithful people who let their yes be yes and their no, no? There are probably 50-plus volunteers each week that make all of this happen. So what if some of those people crossed their fingers when they made that commitment? Well, you might show up and there won't be a Sunday school teacher for your child. Or maybe these chairs wouldn't be set up or this screen and this sound system wouldn't be set up. So I thank God for the amazing volunteers here at Green Tree. And I'm inspired each week by our faithful G crew who do set up and tear down and our faithful teachers who teach our children each week. Aren't you thankful for people who let their yes be yes and their no, no? People who want to be faithful 100%. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us that righteousness can be lived out in every area of our life because we are surrendered to Jesus and he is our righteousness. True righteousness flows out of a righteous being and only Jesus can fulfill the law and have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you recall earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, that was the standard that Jesus set up. It had to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
he's giving us good news here about the nature of righteousness. God's intention for us is that we become righteous people, not just people who occasionally do righteous things. He wants us to reflect his very nature and character to be made new all the way down to the deepest parts of our being. The hope of Christianity is that we get to live life like Jesus. His righteousness and goodness can be ours as he lives in and through us. He can heal what's gone wrong deep inside of us. And the way he does this is by giving us his righteousness and his goodness, much like a blood transfusion. We get to live his life. That is, live each day by the power of his life within us. This is amazing news. George MacDonald said, He makes us whole by making us holy. He makes us holy by making us whole. And you really can't separate the two. Think of how you feel when you commit some offense. Yell at your kids or lie to someone or hide the full truth, or maybe harbor resentment towards someone, or maybe indulge in sexual or romantic fantasies. It tears you apart. Think of the turmoil you feel when you commit these acts repeatedly. When you say you will never do it again, and then moments later find yourself right back in that same place. And think of what an utter relief it would be to be free of the whole mess. I mean, to be so free that you're not even thinking about disciplining yourself not to do it. You just don't want to do it anymore. True change occurred. True healing takes place. This is possible, but not on our human strength. Rather, on the one who overcame the grave on his strength. And as we often sing, through the blood of the Lamb we also become overcomers. I've heard it called the utter relief of holiness. And it's what happens when the life of Jesus invades our life. And so maybe you're thinking at this point, Chip, I believe this. I believe this to be true. But how do I live this out? What does it look like practically? Well, in her book, Spiritual Disciplines Companion, Jan Johnson suggests some things that we can do practically. And I think there's some good stuff here, so I want to share this with you. Three things. First of all, speak to others as though you're in the presence of God. As you go throughout your day having conversations with people, imagine God listening in, especially as you make commitments or fulfill commitments. And then look at this great quote, the man whose heart is true to God utters every statement he makes as though it were made in the very presence of God, before whom even his heart with its inmost thought lies bare, R.C.H. Linsky. Second, speak with simplicity. As you begin each day, ask God to help you love and respect those who speak to you by engaging in simple speech. For me, this means asking God to help me not talk too much, especially if I feel defensive or if I'm worried about what people think of me. 
she suggests that at least three times a week you try to answer a question with a simple yes or no and then just smile and let the person know that you're attentive and ready to hear what they have to say. I don't know about you, but this is going to freak some people out in my world (laughs) because typically I want to add a qualifier. I want to say yes, but dot, 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 or no, but dot, dot, dot. And then I love what William Penn wrote here about the Quaker leader, George Fox. The fewness and fullness of his words have often struck even strangers with admiration. Thirdly, arrange a time to be silent. Enjoy the communion that occurs with God without the burden of having to make small talk. And reflect on how often you use small talk to adjust others people, other people's opinions of you. Maybe it would be a time to repent of not trusting God with your reputation, with what others think of you. And isn't that what often motivates us anyway to make half-truths or to give empty promises, a fear of what people might think of us, coupled with a desperate need for their approval? We have to learn to let God be our all in all, to find joy and satisfaction simply in being his son, simply in being his daughter. His approval is all we really have, and his approval is all we really need. Today, I believe we need this teaching more than ever. We live in a deceptive world, and the ease of presenting a false image of ourselves to others is perhaps at an all-time high with social media. We need to hear Jesus' call to be people of truth now more than ever. He calls us to live like children of the kingdom, and children of the kingdom are those who keep oaths even when it hurts and does not change their mind, Psalm 15, verse 4. Meaning we live in honesty and integrity even when it causes personal pain and difficulty. And I've had a living illustration of that this weekend. As Jesus has taught us, the truth, no matter how painful, is what sets us free. And he understood that better than anyone. Jesus faced the gut-wrenching choice of keeping a costly promise. God had been promising for a thousand years to send a Messiah. And so he sent his son to save the world through his death and his resurrection. But when the moment of truth came in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus felt the weight of keeping that promise. Scripture says he sweat blood. He asked his father, please let this cup pass from me. But but in that moment of truth, when he realized there was no other way, Jesus became the ultimate promise keeper. Let's be men and women of integrity, letting Jesus be the Lord of every aspect of our life, yielding to the Holy Spirit, letting him transform us into the image of Jesus, the image of the ultimate promise keeper, the image of Christian integrity. And then we can say, like Horton the elephant, 
I meant what I said. I said what I meant. A Christian, faithful, 100%. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he indeed was and is the ultimate promise keeper. We thank you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, faced with that gut-riching choice, he chose to do your will. And now, as he lives in and through us, we can be faithful, not on our own strength, but rather on the strength of the one who overcame the grave. We, too, can become overcomers. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we ask you now to be with us as we, in a more physical way, understand that as we come to the Lord's table. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.